Well, good morning. So, uh, it's been since January since I've been in the, since I've preached, and so I'll try to let everyone out by three o'clock today, I promise. Um, I'm thankful that we were able to read from Genesis 12 before. That promise will be the groundworks for where we're going today, though. But our actual text is going to be in Genesis 22, looking at verses 1 through 19. But as you're turning there, I want, you, I want to ask a question. How many of you enjoy taking tests? Show of hands. How many enjoy taking a test? I see David Lee out there. Anybody else? Is there anyone else? Maybe, maybe you don't like taking tests. Maybe you're good at taking tests. Do we have any of those in the crowd? Okay, we see a few more. Well, if you raise your hand, David Lee, I support and applaud you. I salute you, but I am not one of you in any way, shape, or form. I struggle to take tests. It takes so much effort for me to try to gather the information, to prepare, to just, it's a grind the entire way to try to apply whatever I've learned to put it into a test. And at some points, Hebrew, for example, it doesn't matter what you study, it doesn't matter what you do, there's going to be letters that drop off, there's going to be some irregular conjugations, there's going to be all kinds of things that no matter what you do to try to remember, There's a curveball in there somewhere just waiting, and it always comes out on a test. (laughs) It doesn't seem fair, and a lot of times the test, there are other tests in life that also don't seem fair. There was an example, or there was another story that I had heard that there there was a final about to be taken in an ornithology class, okay? This class, it is the study of birds, Riveting stuff, I know. Now, the professor said, hey, this is actually going to be a multiple choice test, and you're going to have some essay questions. You should be able to breeze by, no problem at all. So the students, they prepare, they look over their uh, previous tests, they look over the notes, they read the book, and then comes test day. It wasn't multiple choice. It wasn't essay questions. Instead, they had 25 pictures of just the feet of these birds. Yeah, and the test was you have to identify these birds just based off of the feet. Now, there's one student in particular who is extraordinarily frustrated. He had prepared for this test that he had spent all of his time on, but all of his uh, preparations could not prepare him for this. He goes to the professor saying, this isn't fair. This is insane. Professor says, it doesn't matter. This is the test. This is the final. If you don't take the final, you will fail. The kid says, well, you know what? I don't care. Here's my final. I haven't even filled it out. Professor says, you know what? Well, you failed the final. What is your name? And the kid says, I don't know, professor. You tell me. You tell me. As he pulls up his legs. He pulls up his pants legs. (laughs) Tell me my name. (laughs) That silly example I want us to kind of have somewhere in the back of our minds this morning as we begin to understand that when we go through different tests, when we go through different trials, we know that they reveal what, they reveal something about us. If you're studying for a test in a school, it's going to reveal what knowledge you have about that subject. But I want to see is as believers, we're going to go through tests and trials of faith as we live this life. And rarely does it seem fair in the moment. 
No one's saying, oh, I can't wait to go through this really difficult, rigorous thing, Lord. I can't wait for my faith to be tested. Because instead, our natural response is to ask, Lord, why? Why are you putting me through this? I don't see how you're working in this. What is the purpose behind this test? And then as we continue on in that, in that trial, it can even go deeper than that. We can say, Lord, are you still good in this? Are you still trustworthy? Is the gospel still true? Are the promises that you've made to me, how can I know that those are true in conjunction with what's happening to me now? Every one of us is going to go through a period of life or time that is like that. Now, as we look at Genesis 22, we're going to see Abraham have his faith immensely tested. It is nothing that he could prepare for. It may not have seemed fair. It was over the top. But just from the outset, I want us to see from Genesis 22 that even as, God, as the Lord calls us into difficult circumstances that stretch our faith, we can still trust that the Lord is sovereign and good and his word is always true. Now, as we begin to finally get into the text in just a minute, I have some title, some subject headings for the text. They aren't exactly points, but if you wanted to write something down to at least give you kind of a mental framework, I know I needed to do it as I was going through. I needed some mental hooks to to bring it together. So in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the test that God gives to Abraham. We're going to see the test that God gives to Abraham. In verses 3 through 10, we're going to see Abraham's faithful, obedient response. And in verses 11 through 19, we're going to see the Lord's faithful character revealed. Now, before we get to Genesis 22, we are coming in at the absolute apex of the story, okay? If you're a Star Wars fan, it's like you're starting the movie, you're starting the series, right where Luke is about to find out who his real father is, okay? No spoilers, But it's that important. It's that big a deal. So as we, before we get into Genesis 22, let's look at Abraham's story so then we can understand it and hopefully grasp what's going on here in 22. So as you're probably aware from Genesis, God created everything. He created mankind. And of course, we know that they did not survive the test, that God God didn't test them, but they did not uh, remain truthful to the Lord. They sinned against him. They ate of the tree that they were not supposed to. But even in that moment, the Lord promised that there would be one to come, one that would come from Eve that will bruise the head of the serpent as the serpent bruises the heel of this one to come. Essentially, God was going to send a savior. He's going to send one to rectify the damage that had been done. Now, fast forwarding to Abram, who is not yet named Abraham, we see that he's kind of the tip of the spear, okay? The promise that we read before in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, essentially God is making this incredible promise that he will make Abram into a great nation, and furthermore, that God will bless him, and that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Now, he doesn't, Abraham doesn't know it at the time, but he doesn't know that Jesus, the one who would eventually come through his descendants, that is the blessing that will bless the entire world. Now, all Abraham has to do is he has to just trust in the Lord, go to the land that God will tell him to go, and then God will make it clear as he goes along. I say all jokingly, though, because we know that it took immense faith to reach out and believe in this promise. 
He had to go to a land that he never knew, that he had never been before. He had to leave his home. He had to explain to his wife what they were doing, okay? Now, that conversation is not recorded for us to know, but certainly, I'm sure it was an interesting conversation that he had with Sarah. It's like, we're going to go on a little trip. But we know that he responded in faith to the promise, and this promise is reiterated throughout his story. Now, as we've been talking about Abram, though, we haven't even talked about his age, okay? He's 75 when he first receives this promise. Now, God, I'm going to believe you that somehow at 75 and Sarah, who is around 65, you said you're going to make me a great nation. First, I got to start having some kids. How's that going to work out? It just ain't happening under normal circumstances unless you intervene. God, you have to intervene in this moment. And as you might expect, Abram begins to fret over his childless state. He re- but God re- reiterates the promise to him again in Genesis 15. He takes Abraham out under the stars and challenges him to count them if he could. Take, um, and God said, to Abraham, God said to Abraham, count them if he could. Uh, and so shall your offspring be in Genesis 15, 5. Now, still an amazing promise, but Abram listens, he understands, and he believes, and it's counted to him as righteousness. So now, in time, we're going to skip over a bunch of things, but we're going to see that Isaac is eventually born. This is the child of promise. His name would mean laughter, which this whole, this whole situation is funny, but also we know that Sarah, whenever she first heard that she was going to have a baby, she laughed, okay? The right response, honestly, under the circumstances, is just a funny, funny situation. But eventually, Abram would become Abraham, meaning the father of many, and Isaac would be, would be born, fulfilling the promise. Now, as, uh, as I said, we skipped over a number of things. Some important things to note is that Abraham's faith was not always pristine during this time. He would actually uh, pass off his wife as his sister, not once, but twice. Another interesting conversations, uh, more conversations that aren't <laughs> recorded for us in Scripture, but I'm sure it was great. And then he also had Ishmael as he was trying to fulfill the promise that God had made to him through his, um, through Sarah's servant, Hagar. So we can see that Abraham also had some breaches of faith, but now we're going to see the test of faith, the ultimate test. Will Abraham remain to the end truthful and faithful to the Lord? So Genesis 22. Now we finally get to the test, verses 1 and 2. Let me go ahead and read that for us as I start in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now we have to think about everything that has led to this point. We only know the highlights of what we just covered, but it's enough to see that we have this promise. We have the child of promise. We've gone through all of this. The Lord has somehow blessed this situation. And then we see this astounding command. Now, at least for the reader, we can at least see and know that this is in fact a test. We see that in verse one. But of course, Abraham doesn't know that. He just sees 
He just hears the Lord calling to him, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. I'm ready to do whatever you tell me to do. Are you sure about that? Because then we see the command in verse 2. But let's continue, though, with verse 2 and see the sequence of statements as he describes Isaac. It says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I want us to see that after the birth of Isaac, all the focus was on him. He was the miracle child, the child of promise. This incredible miracle, just here he is. But if you remember what I said before, though, about Ishmael, how could we say that uh, Isaac was Abraham's only son? Well, we have to remember that as this is by virtue, as Abraham had Ishmael sent away some time before, Isaac was Abraham's only son as he was the seed that was promised to him. Therefore, in God's eyes, this is his only son. Isaac, therefore, was special. He stood apart. He was different in a good way. But more than just the logical fulfillment of promise, I want us to see that Abraham loved him dearly. He loved him profoundly, the kind that hurts. This wasn't just, oh, I have a son now. Like, no, this is my pride and joy, the one who I um, encourage and love on. This is my wonderful son, Isaac. And he was cherished beyond compare. And what did God ask Abraham to do with this child of promise? Protect him? Love him forevermore? Be a good parent? No. Take your son, take him to Mount Moriah, and offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord. Could you imagine the horror of that statement? And beyond just the the human sacrifice aspect of it, which is terrible, remember what we read before in Genesis 12. We have the promise in one hand, yet we have the command to sacrifice and seemingly take away everything that you've done so far. Lord, this doesn't make sense. This is an impossible task that you're asking me to do. What would you do? Think of your son or daughter. Think of someone who you love dearly. If God asked you, to sacrifice them to him, would you do it? I'd be willing to say that most of us wouldn't do it, couldn't do it. I don't know if I could. But that is the question, and that is the test that is being put forth to Abraham now. Will you give up the gift at the command of the giver? Now, as we continue through the text, I'm going to ask you to put a star by certain verses in which we will come back through and kind of link those together. But if you write in your Bible, put a star by verse 2. And we'll come back to it in just a minute. So let's continue to see Abraham's faithful, obedient response in verses 3 through 10. Let me read starting in verse 3. We'll do 3 through 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. As mind-boggling as the command that Abraham receives from the Lord, what's more surprising is Abraham's immediate response of faith. He wasted no time the next day. He woke up early, and he immediately was busy cutting the wood, saddling the donkey, making preparations for what God had asked him to do. Now, of course, we don't really know what's going on in Abraham's mind at this moment in time. But certainly we can guess and we can figure out that certainly he had to have been struggling in that moment. Commentators would say that, well, maybe he woke up early because he couldn't sleep the night before. Could you sleep the night before if if God had told you to kill your son? Most of us probably couldn't. And maybe he was cutting the wood and maybe he was saddling the donkey. These are things that Abraham, he could have asked somebody else to do. Abraham is the richest man around at this time. He could have asked any of the servants to say, do this. I'm just going to go hang back. No, he did it himself. We We may not be able to know exactly what was going on through his mind, but we can certainly gather that it was a difficult command that he was obediently following. R.C. Sproul would comment on the type of faith that Abraham needed here when he says, Sometimes the faith by which the Christian stands is a faith that is made with clenched teeth, where you're hanging on by your fingernails. In obedience, it is not always easy. But Abraham started out by hanging tough, and he was doing what God was telling him to do. As we continue in verse 4, we can see that as he's preparing, he sees that um, on the third day, we see that Mount Moriah is about a three-day trip away. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place where God had commanded him to sacrifice his son. But let's look at verse 5 a little more closely. Abraham says, to tell his servants to stay with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, as we know the situation that's going on with Abraham, we know the command that's been given. What he says to his servants here doesn't really seem to make sense. You have to think, I will, the boy and I will go over to worship. Abraham said nothing about the sacrifice. He just generally said to worship. Now, that might begin to create some questions in the back of our minds. Is Abraham going to flake out? Is he going to skip out on what God had commanded him to do? And this idea is only further continued is when he says, the boy and I will return. How could Isaac return if he actually fulfilled the sacrifice that God had commanded him to do? You would not be wrong for questioning whenever we read that. But I want us to see, though, that Hebrews 11 really answers this question. It really fills it out for us, and we're able to, thankfully, read a little deeper there. So in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, I'll read it, and we'll see what it says. Starting verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But listen to 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what is this saying? His faith, Abraham's faith, was so immense 
that he believed that God would raise his son Isaac from the dead. There's no way that God could contradict his own word. He believed that the promises that he holds are true and the commands somehow will be carried out, whatever is necessary, but God cannot be wrong. That is an incredible, incredible faith. Now, maybe for the ambigu- ambiguity here, why did, why did Abraham say it as he did? Why didn't he just say, oh, I'm going to go do a sacrifice. Oh, I'm going to go do this. Well, it could be he didn't want to raise any questions from his servants. He also maybe didn't want to scare Isaac in that moment. Certainly, if that's the first thing you hear, if I'm Isaac, I'm probably going to turn tail and run. Wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, I'm like, I'm not going to be a sacrifice. But we have to come back and just remember that... Um, Isaac trusted Abraham. We'll see that more in a moment. But Abraham's faith is absolutely rock solid as he continues onward. So as we continue, let's look at verses 6 through 8, and I'll read that for us. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now as we kind of quickly move through verse 6, we see that Abraham And Isaac, they're gathering everything necessary for the sacrifice. Maybe as they get off the donkey, maybe uh, it's too steep to go up the hill. We know that they're at least close. They put the wood on Isaac. Abraham takes the fire and the the knife, and they go upward together. But then verse 7, we see the infamous question from Isaac. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering. If Abraham's grief and struggle wasn't enough, this question certainly doesn't make it any easier. We have to see, though, that this question goes much deeper than just the question itself. It tells us a lot about Isaac. Unlike most TV shows, most illustrated children's Bibles, Isaac is not a six-year-old kid. Okay. If you see the story portrayed, it's almost always as Isaac as a little boy. You have to see that even just by the question, Isaac's old enough to know what's going on. He's old enough to see that we're missing an important component of this sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb? And we see this idea continued when he carries the wood himself up the hill. You certainly wouldn't put that on your six-year-old kid. And even when we look at the Hebrew itself, we're able to see that the word for boy there, which I won't pull out, but the word for boy is meaning someone at least 15, maybe even closer to 18. This was a young man. This was not just a kid. But beyond illustrating Isaac's age, the other thing that we're able to see is that Isaac had an implicit trust and even innocence to him. We'll just, we see the seeds of it here, but we'll see this trust continue to grow as we continue, especially as Isaac responds to Abraham later in verses 8 and 9. We see his actions. But I want us to see that this trust, it's his father. He has this relationship that 
Of course I'm not the sacrificial lamb. Of course I'm not the one to be sacrificed. But I'm going to ask you honest questions just to know what comes next. And so then, verse 8, we see the response from Abraham, though. It says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, this is a critical turn, a critical point in this entire passage, because we begin to see that as he's been commanded to go, it's been three days, he's had time to think about it, but now the place from afar is now 10 feet away, or at least it's really, really close. He has the fire in hand. He has the wood. He has Isaac. God still hasn't said, nope, just kidding. You still have to go. No, he continues onward. And yet remember, remember the drama. Remember the, the, the seemingly, seemingly um, opposed things that I have this promise that God is going to bless me, that he's going to bless the world through me. And yet how can I do that if I kill my only son? Lord, this doesn't make any sense. How is this going to work? And the reality is, is that he does not know. He doesn't know. All he can do is trust and let God be God. John Calvin would comment on this, on this event, on this situation as one that we should imitate and one that we should mirror. He says that uh, this example is for our imitation. In such straits, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. We pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. I want us to see that Abraham's faith, it is not a blind faith. He's seen the Lord work already. But I do want us to see that that doesn't always mean that you're going to know exactly how it's going to come together. You cannot see how X and Y are somehow connecting. All you can do is trust that God is God, that he's going to bring it together to his own purpose, and that somehow he's he's going to make it work, even though we may not see how. If you're putting stars by your verses, 6, 7, and 8, all three, put stars there. Let's continue with verses 9 and 10, though. We'll continue to see his faith. Starting in verse 9, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. They've reached the place that they're supposed to go. All the details have come together. Abraham has built the altar, and he has bound Isaac. Now, part of this, I want us to see that this implicit trust that I mentioned before, we see it in full fruition now. Isaac allowed himself to be bound. Because you have to think, Isaac is younger, he's stronger, he's faster. If he was not on board with this situation, he would have run off. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be bound. He allowed himself to become the sacrifice, not fully knowing, not understanding why, but we only see that he trusted his father. He trusted what Abraham told him to do. We hold up Abraham as the example of faith, but we can see and know that Isaac's faith is noteworthy as well in this situation. 
But let's, we've seen the obedience from Abraham throughout verses 3 through 10. Now let's see the Lord's faithful character revealed in verses 11 through 19. I'm going to start in verse 11 and read through 14. It says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What an incredible conclusion to the story. As Abraham was in mid-swing, he hears his name, Abraham, Abraham. I can only imagine the, just the relief that washes over Abraham and Isaac as well in that moment. But we can see from verse 11 that this was in fact a test. That his fear of the Lord was revealed because how could he have done and gone through everything he was doing if he did not fear and trust in the Lord? And even with verse 11 and 12, we're able to see that it's reiterated that this is your son, your only son, whom you have not withheld from me. His most precious thing to him, and he's willing to give it up for the Lord. But then as the story continues, we see that there's been a ram that has been caught in the thicket behind him. And in a flash, instead of uh, sacrificing Isaac, they put the ram in his place. And as an act of worship to the Lord, they sacrificed the ram instead of Isaac. As Abraham's faith is fully bolstered now, he calls that place, the Lord will provide. Because the Lord had provided when there was no other way. God made it happen when Abraham didn't know how it's going to come together. I want us to think, though, I want us to pull back for a second. We've looked very carefully through the text. We've been able to see all of these ideas coming together. And it's really a simple, it's a simple uh, story if you really think about it. Abraham is tested. We see his faith on display. And then we see that God remains true to his word. But what I want us to know is that throughout this entire passage, it is filled with foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. It's filled with the image of God the Father who would eventually sacrifice his own son, Jesus Christ. Remember all those stars I told you to make before? We're going to kind of link those together now. Because like Isaac, Jesus trusted his father and said, not my will, but thy will be done. Before he went up to Calvary. Like Isaac, Jesus was the innocent, sacrificial lamb who, willing, who willingly went up to Calvary. Jesus didn't deserve death. Isaac didn't deserve death. But yet we see Isaac's trust as he was bound and placed on the altar. We see Jesus went willingly. He wasn't forced to. At any point, he could have stepped off of that cross, but he didn't. 
He went up there on his own accord. Which, by the way, when we're talking about Calvary, Mount Moriah, which is where the sacrifice was supposed to take place, is within eyesight of Calvary. I don't think that's I don't think that's a random fact. I think that is providential in how the Lord worked that all together. And like Isaac, Jesus was to carry the wood up to his own sacrifice, just like Jesus would carry his own cross on the road to Calvary. But you know where the correlation ends between Jesus and Isaac? There would be no one to stop the Lord from sacrificing his own son. Where there was a sacrificial ram that took the place of Isaac, no one would say to the Lord, stop what you're doing. The Lord took his own son's life for you and me in the place that we deserve. We deserve death. We have sinned against him. We are enemies of God, yet the Lord said, no, I'm going to sacrifice my own son for you because I love you this much. Because there was no other sacrifice that could take the place of Jesus. He was the only one with his perfect, sinless life, fully God, fully man, that could take our place, that could bridge the gap that we could never do on our own. Only Jesus could take that place. And as we see Abraham's devotion to the Lord, we also see the Lord's devotion to us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you ever question the Lord's devotion to you, look to the cross. The Lord loves you that much that he was willing to give up his own son for you and me. The Lord has indeed provided, as we were lost in sin, he made the sacrifice for us. But we see the story is not done yet. Let's read verses 15 through 19 as we begin to close out this story. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together in Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Remember Genesis 12 that Jim read before. We see that promise reiterated here. A little different wording, but basically the same idea. Because as Abraham had remained strong in his faith and devotion to the Lord, the Lord said, I'm going to continue. I'm going to fulfill the promise that I have made to you because we know the Lord's word is always true. And with this idea, in verse 16, though, we see another God being God moment, God doing God things. 
He swears by himself, which is something only God can do and take seriously. If I said, based on my word, Matt Chapman, I will do this thing, you'd tell me to get lost. You would tell me that you're full of it. You would tell me everything that is terrible because you would be right. As any man, I am sinful and I am far from perfect. But we see that God's character is holy and good and mighty. Hebrews 6 verses 13 through 15 kind of further explains this idea. He says that for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The Lord's character is perfect. He is always good. He's always truthful. You can take what he says to the bank. I want you to see that no matter what you were going through, the Lord is always good. He will always remain true to you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. doesn't matter what you feel like. You look to the cross. You look to the word because that is where your hope lies. But with all of this in mind, we have just a few short applications. I promise I'm almost done. The first application from this text, we, we should view coming trials and difficulties as opportunities to grow in your faith, not as obstacles to disrupt our faith. Remember before what I said, when you're normally going through a trial, your first response is usually to throw your head up in the air, throw your hands up in the air and say, why? Why are you picking on me? We should have God's view of trials, which is to grow us in our faith. Even James tells us that we should count all uh, trials as a joy because of what it produces. First Peter 1, 6-8 would say this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whenever we go through struggles, the Lord uses those to test our faith in him, to grow our faith, which, as Peter says, is more precious than gold. There's nothing more important than our faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we go through trials, it may be hard, but we should always look upward and say, Lord, do what you need to do in this moment. Grow my faith. It's okay. We see our second application from this text. Evaluate your life. Evaluate your faith in Christ. We know from testing that we are, we're going to see what's inside of us when we go through this situation. But on this side of it, we can already start to see, we can evaluate where we are with Christ. Lord, are you really my hope? Are you really my treasure? Do I look to you for everything? Do I look to myself for anything? Because if I do, I shouldn't. And if I find joy in anything else other than you, I shouldn't. And if you're really brave, ask your spouse, what do you see in me that has not been brought under dominion of Christ? 
Because of course when I view myself, oh, I've got it all together. I know exactly what's going on and my faith is great. Then you're able to ask a good friend and say, you know what? You're missing a number of spots here that I've noticed in you. It's humbling, but it's worthwhile. It's worth evaluating and knowing, is my faith truly solid? Am I really looking to Christ in all things? And then finally, our final application, rejoice in Christ. Brothers and sisters, our sin has been nailed to the cross. Praise be to God. When we were lost without hope, he gave his own son so that we may have the opportunity to know him, to be in relationship with him. The Lord is good. He is awesome. He is holy. Everything in this word is true. Every promise is true. Revel in that. Rejoice in that. Know that today. No matter what happens, rejoice that the Lord is faithful and good. Will you pray with me? Father, Lord, we don't always understand what you're doing. We don't, we, and if we do, we probably don't. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith today. A faith that hangs tough, that will continue onward no matter what we encounter. Lord, would you help us to know you deeper every day? Lord, bring any part of me that is not under dominion of you. Lord, continually sanctify us. Draw us closer to you. Lord, thank you. When we were without hope, you gave your only son for us. You died for us. I pray that we would know that every day, that we would just rejoice in that fact and that truth. Lord, we thank you uh, for this time together to open your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen.